Thank you so much, Pastor Jeff. It's always good to hear God's Word. And if you join us for the very first time, we are preaching through the book of Genesis. It's a wonderful book to be learning. Why? It's the book of beginnings. So, let's begin by asking one or two questions, right? And the one or two questions is, how many of you love holidays? Totally unusual if you don't. What is it that you love about holidays? What is it you don't love about holidays? For parents who are here with young kids, school-going kids, they don't like the holidays, especially school holidays, because it's too long. For students and children, the school holidays are too short. And my own experience of holidays was I really hated going back to school. And the Sunday before the Monday, before we head back to school, or whatever day we start school, there'll be a sense of emptiness, a sense of hollowness, a sense of dread and drudgery going back to school. Because I was going back to the, to the real world. For about six weeks, seven weeks, I was in the unreal world of holidays. No exams, no studies, no nothing, no discipline. This wonderful, wonderful. How many of you as students feel that way? Don't put up your hands. And so, there's a difference between which world we live in. And so, I went for the first time to, um, to Disneyland in America, en route to my sabbatical. And when we first arrived, it was about after, late afternoon, evening, we said, they, they told us there would be a uh, parade down Main Street. And the parade down Main Street is the, the big thing. And it was 1998, it was just after Mulan was launched, and Mulan became a global success. And so I remember grabbing my two kids and then picking my daughter and putting her up here because she was young enough to do that, and just rushing and the sense of joy, the sense of happiness, just to be in that world. That's the magic of Disney. His ability to create a world, right, that takes you away from all the pains, from all the problems, each year when we go for the church camp, oftentimes I would say in the early years, the camp, is this the real world? Or are you going back to the real world in Singapore or Malaysia or wherever you go back to? It's very important that we, we ask this. Genesis 1 and 2, that God creates the whole universe and then creates the world and puts Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden as a symbol of ruling the universe and ruling the world on God's behalf. Is that the real world? I say to you on God's behalf, that was the real world. A world created by God, a world rightly ruled by God, a world that was paradisical and heavenly. From Genesis 3 onwards, we walk into the unreal world, the unreal world where men and women rule ourselves, the unreal world where viruses threaten us, the unreal world where you and me will go to hospitals, at some point in life, the unreal world where all of us seated here and all of us li listening to this will one day die. There's a contrast of two worlds between Genesis 1 and 2, the wonderful world and the beautiful life that God invites us to and the world that we step out into when we fail to listen to God. So that's on view, my friends. We have to choose between the two worlds. And so... A simple understanding of the chapter goes along this line. And so in Hebrew stories, Hebrew narratives, you've got to focus on where the narrative, usually two characters, three characters, and the first one, the two characters, is the serpent speaking to Eve for seven verses. Then God speaks to Adam from verse 8 to 13. And then from that point onwards, the repercussions of what Adam and Eve do, both in response to the serpent 
all in response to God, has now massive implications for all of us. In other words, as you read Genesis 3, it's not for somebody out there. It's not for your father, it's not for your mother, it's not for your friend, it's not for your atheist friend. It is for you and for me. All that happens here is in the unreal world where you and me rule ourselves without God. So are you ready? Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the bees of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Can you read this in response with me? The first thing I think we need to accept, the first thing we need to get right and clear the air about is this. And what is this? Lessons about the serpent. Here we are introduced to the fact of evil. In the symbol of the serpent who in the rest of the Bible and Scripture becomes identified with Satan. So we are introduced to the fact of evil, not the origins of evil. How did this happen? When did this happen? When did Satan come about? The rest of Scripture is not clear on this. So we got to go where God takes us in His Word. To focus on the known, God reveals to us the fact of evil. He doesn't explain to us the origins of evil or the whys of evil or the purposes of evil. So it's good for us to be humble and to go where God wants us to go. This is what He has kindly revealed to us. This is what He's kindly withheld from us. So we focus on the known that even in God's created world, which He pronounced very good, there existed a being, at least figuratively here, the serpent, who becomes a tool of the devil. Don't focus on the unknowable. And that's very important, friends, because God reveals so that we can have faith in Him. And so in true humility, we can say to people asking, I, I really don't know where you came from. I really don't know. Because any, anything beyond that is speculative. And when we go into speculative doctrine or speculative theology, it doesn't serve anybody. The next thing to note is this. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Together, can we read this? And here in the Garden of Eden, recorded for us in Genesis 3, I think we must start to be beware. Beware of what? Beware of devilish conversations. Beware of diabolical conversations that comes from the evil one. And the devilish conversations that come from the evil one that now is part of our DNA can be summarized as three Ds. Firstly, the serpent comes along and makes you doubt God's word. Did God really say? Did God really say? And did you notice Eve, who heard God's word most likely from Adam, right? She plays along with this doubt of God's word 
and distortion of God's word because she doesn't distinguish between, because there are two trees in the middle of the garden. One is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The other is the tree of life. And she just said, you must not eat from the trees in the midst of the garden. And then she plays along even more. You must not touch it, for that was not specifically there in God's original instruction to Adam. And so the doubting of God's word, did God really say to the distortion of God's word in the midst of it, in the midst of it, there are two trees. Which one? Which one? Imagine teaching a child, which one should I touch? Which one shall I do? And you say, never mind, in the middle you'll know. It's a little bit fuzzy, right? It's a little bit confusing. And that leads finally to a disobedience to God. So please take note that that is what Satan is going for. The first two steps, the doubting of God's word, the distortion of God's word, is only but a means to the end. Now, over the past week, have you experienced these three Ds? It's without doubt you and me would have experienced this. Because every temptation begins this way before it becomes full-blown sin. So what's so wrong about watching what I want on my phone, doing what I want on my phone? Is it really so bad? Did God say something specific about it? Did God have a specific word about iPhones, about Huawei? No, He didn't. Did He have a specific word about Google? No, He didn't. But He did say there's a right way to live and a wrong way to live. And that's unpacked in the rest of the Bible. And that begins, man will either, because in chapter 1, you meet a God who spoke the universe into being. God said, and it was. God said, and it was. You tried it? You said, and it was not so. God said, and it was. God speaks. Because we meet the God of word, every word of God fulfills the will of God. So God does not speak His word for your pondering, for your opinions, for your contemplation. God speaks His word for our obedience. It's very important. We'll come back to that at the end of the sermon. And notice the essence of sin, the essence of temptation. The essence of temptation is that we are discontented with what we have. Let's say there were a hundred trees in the Garden of Eden. Eve chose to ignore the 99 other trees that were good for food and pleasing to the eye. And she chose to focus on the one tree and so discontented with what she already had together with Adam and then faintly distracted or faintly attracted to what the serpent was suggesting is missing in our lives. So you and I not just face the three Ds day by day as you sit in the privacy of your rooms, as you sit with the privacy of your phones and contemplate whether you're now going to doubt God's Word, distort God's Word, and full-blown disobedience. But you and I have to capture, have to understand the essence of temptation from the evil one. He will firstly make you discontented. So for all of us seated here, are you contented or discontented? Answer truthfully. Not to me, but to God. Contented or discontented? Answer truthfully. For who you are, for what you have. So if Mona, my wife, was here, am I contented with Mona? Yes. Am I contented with my two children? Yes. Am I contented with my church? 
Yes. Am I contented in my health? Yes. Am I contented in living in Singapore? Yes. Am I truly contented? Are you walking around with low-grade discontentment? Satan always has a place for the unconfessed low-grade discontentment. You're contented with many things, but there's one thing that you think that is missing in your life. You haven't surrendered that area yet. So Satan is called crafty. That is a word that we should never use for ourselves. And there is no description of the craftiness apart from his dialogue. So you know the character of a person by their dialogue. That's Hebrew storytelling. Unlike English storytelling, I do not know about ancient storytelling, they'll describe the person's goodness or evilness, morality, immorality, describe it. But in Hebrew writing, they don't describe it. You will have to reach the conclusion by what they speak. So whatever the serpent speaks, take note. Satan's craftiness, the next slide, is that he presents God as the great pretender. You know, there was a song sung by the, the great pretender. By who? The platters, only those. Who was that? My generation. Thank you so much, Francis. Right? And he goes, oh yes, I'm a great pretender. I'm a great pretender. So the serpent comes along and says, you think God created all this for your good? He's a great pretender. He's the master party pooper because he doesn't want you to partake of this number one fruit because your eyes will be open and you will be like him. You'll be a challenge to him. You'll be an equal to God. The God of the universe can't take it. His ego can't manage this. So Satan presents him as the great denier. Is that how he's presenting God to you in the past week? Even as you sit here and now focus on the sermon, hopefully for 45 minutes, but as you walk out there, you're going to look out for that one missing puzzle, the silver bullet of your life that will make your life charmed and beautiful and complete in your own eyes with your own strength. And Satan is always whispering in your ears, God didn't give you the first choice life. He gave you the second choice life. So conversation between husband and wife, husband and wife were having a tiff for the unteamed time, and then he just burst out and said, right, I've always had second-hand goods. And by that, he was referring to what he knew of his wife that she had had an affair while they were dating. And he burst out and said that. And it struck her in the heart because she thought he had completely forgiven her. But he used that emotional blackmail again and again. You think your husband or wife is second choice? No matter what their background, no matter what their background, if I made the choice to marry them, they are my first choice under God. You never think that you're living in your second choice country called Singapore. You're living with a second choice person called your husband or wife and you got second choice children because if you were God, He should have given you better children than this. Be very careful, my friends, the essence of Satan's craftiness. So you sit here and actually you and me have everything but still there's the nagging, nagging voice. There's something missing in your life. Something's missing. Be mindful of that. And so Satan promises Adam and Eve, beginning with Eve, freedom and fullness. 
freedom and fullness. And so our diabolical wisdom, so you've heard the saying about Caesar, I came, I saw, I conquered. I came, I saw, I conquered. With Eve, and then our problem from Eve, is I saw what I like, I like what I saw, and I took what I saw and I like. Am, am I making sense? <laughs> Something along those lines. La. I see, I like, I take. I see, I like, I take. This is what we call the goodness of the God-forsaken life. The goodness of your self-determined life. I like what I see, I see what I like, I take what I like, whatever. The goodness of the self-made life. And in Western liberalism, the worldview that pervades the world, this is freedom, this is fullness. Just do your own thing as long as you don't harm neighbour. Just do your own thing. Doesn't harm God, doesn't harm neighbour. Do your own thing. You're sitting here and doing your own thing? And you think you're free and you're full? I would just recommend that you listen to the testimonies or read the testimonies of your new member services. Right? At any point in time, go read the testimony of our brother in Christ, Benny Tiam, who thought he was a free and full person at 14 years old and did drugs and then financed it with, with, with uh, crime. And no matter how many times his parents forgave him, how many times he was thrown in prison, his mind was still set, hell-bent, in the lyrics of this song, hell-bent on living my life my own way until God really struck him and brought him to his knees in prison through the ministry of Jeff and our brothers in Christ. Hell-bent to live your own life? How many other secret rendezvous are you making on your phone? Thinking that you have the freedom and this is the fullness. Rubbish. Diabolical, devilish rubbish that Satan whispers into our ears again and again. And so, freedom and fullness, far from seeing like God and becoming like God, we are now enslaved because we are now exposed to the experience of evil. And there's a huge difference between us and God. God is the only being in the entire universe who can have knowledge of good and evil and then handle it and then turn evil to serve good. We are exposed to good and evil, to evil, and we can't handle it because it will dominate you from morning to night. And far from being able to turn evil into good, you and me are powerless to do anything about it. So you wear a pedometer, you wear a Fitbit or whatever you wear, an eye watch, right? You wear something that measures. If there was an invention that measures every thought that goes through your mind and then can turn that thought pattern into voice straight away, right? How many of you will buy that? <laughs> you wear it on your wrist, you wear it on your head, right? It registers every thought, every split second your thoughts going by and then it will come up, Chris is thinking this, Chris is thinking this, Chris. Nobody will buy it. That's called the mimometer or the thought all meter Nobody will buy because it's so dangerous. From morning to night, what percentage of your thoughts will fall into the evil category? Be honest. Give a rough, rough shot at it. 50%? 70%? 90%? Hovering around the very high end, distinction level. What percentage of your thoughts will fall into the good level 
hovering on the tail end, fail. We are exposed to evil and we can't handle it. And far from being able to handle it, it will consume us. It will consume us. And so our DNA of sin is like that. Now, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God walking, figurative. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. Can you paint a mental picture of this? The mental picture is you're walking around botanic gardens. Then you lost your children, or children did something wrong. And then say, which tree are you hiding behind? Is that the picture? In a forest, even worse. You can get, get lost in a dense forest. Our NS men who go and train in the jungles of Brunei would know that you can get really lost because every tree looks the same unless you have a local guide tracker to take you out of it. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Never was there a hint of fear in Genesis 1 and 2. In the real world that God invited men and women to enter and to rest with God. From Genesis 3 onwards, there is hiding and there is fear. It goes on. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? It's not as if God is not omniscient, all-knowing. It's not as if He didn't know. He's just giving them a chance to come clean. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. In local terms, I didn't want the durian, I didn't want the durian, I like the durian, but she put it in my mouth. Right? She really gave it to me and said, Please eat. Right? Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. And you know the acronym we have given to understand this all these years in, in ERPC has been the characteristic of sin, our DNA of sin is very simply HDB. We hide from God, we hide from others horizontally, we deny our culpability and our blame in that guilt, and deny our responsibility in that, in that sin, and then we blame others. And this is the first hint of our human self-redemption. In our human self-redemption, we don't have to confess our sin, we just have to perfect the hiding, the denying, and the blaming. So go back and audit every petty quarrel you have ever had in your dysfunctional family. And the last time you checked, every family, every family since Adam's family, Adam's family, sorry. Every family since Adam's family has been and will be dysfunctional. Agree? And you watch every petty quarrel and go and find the hiding, the denying, and the blaming of each other. And somewhere along the line, when you had another one of these petty quarrels, you're standing at the sink and you're crying already, is this going to go on for the next 10 years of our life? Or you're lying in bed and it's another horrid night? Is this going to go on? You are asking yourself the HDB question. When is this virtuous cycle, vicious cycle of hiding from God hiding from each other, denying and blaming each other going to end? Answer, never. Turn to your neighbour and say to them, 
this will never end. Be afraid. Be very afraid. It's not going to end. I, I promise you, the moment you finish eating at the canteen, you get into the car, if you don't have God in your life, you will go down this track. No matter where you live, it's a matter of time before you do it. I've told this story a million times, right? So I saw Mona give birth, labor to that labor, all those hours she gave birth, and I promised God in seeing, going, uh, seeing her go through all that pain to bring about our child that I'll never have another petty quarrel with her. Guess how long that promise lasted? <laughs> when couldn't feed the baby, hey, you do, I do. You're the mother, no? You should know how to feed. Of course, I didn't say that. Never ends. This hiding, this denying, and this blaming. And it kills us. It kills the purpose for what God created us for. It kills the joy for what God created us for. And so we carry on. For the rest of it, we have to summarize rather quickly. Did you notice as you read, as the chapter unfolds on this, that there are three orders that are here that we need understanding and unpacking. And the three orders are this. Firstly, the order of creation. God created Adam and then Eve. Remember in Genesis 2? Right? Eve, because no suitable helper was found for him from among all the living stock. And then he created animals. He created animals first. But in terms of order or priority, he did this. But notice the order of temptation. It came through the animal, a serpent. A serpent that speaks. Up to this point in the narrative in Genesis 1 and 2, only two parties, only two beings have the capacity to speak. God and Adam, who names the animals. Animals are not allowed to speak. We're not given by God to speak. This is not Dr. Doolittle. And that's an imaginary world. So we know the standard joke, but let me say it one more time. If Adam and Eve were Chinese, there would be no fall. Because they look at the serpent, they would have killed it and double-boiled it at soup. <laughs> serpent who speaks, kill even faster. Double-ball, quadruple-ball. There'll be no more DNA of sin. But here it is. The serpent speaking to Eve. Eve could have just run to Adam and said, Animal, talk to me. Adam said, that's strange. So far, only God has spoken, and I have spoken, and you speak. Animals shouldn't speak. Should we go and ask God about this serpent? Possible conversation, highly speculative, but highly possible. She goes back as helper to her leader, and the leader, together with her, helping her to obey God, helping her to worship God, goes back to God who made them and say, what do you think, God? We just met a serpent who spoke. Is this natural? Should we respond to him? No. No such possibility. Just bang, me and the serpent. Sounds good, sounds good, sounds good. Devilish conversation. But the order of questioning from God, God firstly questions Adam. Who do you think he should have questioned first? The serpent. That's where he came from. But no, he questions Adam. And then Eve. And then the serpent. But he curses the serpent first. And then the distortion goes wrong with Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve and the created world. The order of questioning is the order of authority. 
So one way to understand rebellion against God, experiencing sin in our lives, is that we go against the person of God, we go against the purposes of God, and we go against the ordering of God's life. Whenever we challenge God's order of things, who said He created us this way? Who said it should be men as leader of the household and women as helpers? Who said He created us with fixed sexualities, binary sexualities, male and female? Why can't it be sexual plasticity and sexual fluidity? That, all that is a challenge to the person of God, the purposes of God, and the ordering of God for life to be lived in peace under Him to His glory. And so, there are always repercussions of sin. And the repercussions of sin are three broken relationships. So what makes you unable to sleep at night? What makes you unable to sleep at night and having to see a doctor is when you have strained, fractured, broken relationships. And the three broken relationships in Genesis chapter 3 is firstly a broken relationship with God experienced and confirmed by our hiding, our denying, and our blaming. Then we've got a broken relationship between men and women. Her desire will be for her husband, and he will rule over her. And then we've got brokenness with creation. By the sweat of your brow, the ground will now produce thorns and thistles. This is life outside of God's presence. And this is life outside Eden. This is now the unreal world that you and me have created in our minds and with our hands. And so, repercussions. But here is the first hint of hope. The first hint of hope. The first hint of the gospel. Of any good news in this whole experience and whole chapter, redolent, drowning with bad news is I will put enmity between you and the woman. God curses the serpent. And between your offspring, singular, and her offspring, singular, you shall bruise his head, but he, you, he shall bruise your head, sorry. He shall bruise your head, which is fatal. And he shall bruise his heel, which is not fatal. And how do we know this is the first hint of the gospel? Because by the time the New Testament writers come, they speak about the serpent crusher. And the serpent crusher is none other than Jesus. For if people ask you, what's the message of the Bible? It's not a book of morality. It's not a book of religion. It's not a book of spirituality. It's how God crushed the serpent and brought us back, and redeemed us, and brought us back to His purposes. And so vitally important that we get this. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. And then in Revelation, the next slide, the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, this is John writing on the island of Patmos, and he identifies the devil as the great dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He lied in the Garden of Eden. He's been lying throughout, and every moment of your life, he's still speaking lies to you. He has thrown down to the earth, 
and his angels were thrown down with him. And so, the Bible is in search of Jesus, of God's serpent crusher, who turns out to be Jesus, that by his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead, he offers us no longer a world outside Eden, living on broken glass, a world full with tears and pain, a world full of sickness and death. And so, two lessons to end our time. The seriousness of God's Word. Please take note that from Genesis 3, in the learning from Eve and Adam, that God is not interested in your opinions of whether that tree is, is there for good or bad. He's interested in your obedience. You must not eat of it. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. So for those of us who presume to be believers, how has your reading of God's Word been? How is it now? Do you read God's Word and just nothing happens to you? And so, times I read, I'll write a Facebook post and I'll, I'll suggest to you that you read the latest Facebook post and keep reading them because we'll keep updating you, not simply because of what we face now with the global health threat. And so... I got something back and it was this couple that we were ministering to and, and she's been so ministered to. said, remember you sent me this a while ago when we were going through a hard time? You're reading on Psalm 16 that the Lord preserves those who belong to Him. I had forgotten I'd written that. I don't know, just last year or the year before. But as she sent me that, I'm ministering to another couple that's going through a difficult time. I immediately said, this is the Word of God for them. For them. But notice the chain of events, the chain of, the chain of events, the chain of salvation. Firstly, me as the reader, I have to be humbly ministered to first. If I read Psalm 16 and nothing strikes me, and I, I just read it as part of routine, then I wouldn't have been able to write something. That this Psalm and Psalm 18 have protected my life all the 30 years of pastoring all around the world, beginning with ARPC. Has God spoken to you? That's obedience. That's not asking for your opinion. Which author said what about verse 4? Which author said what about verse 7? The original author said, obey this, don't do this. You don't need another human horizontal voice to tell you what it means. You read it for what it is, it says what it is, you just say, Lord, help me. I now know what you mean. That anger does not bring about the righteous life of a person. That a man should not look at a woman lustfully. That envy brings all sorts of whatever is the word, from anger to pride to envy in your life and my life. Is that true of you? I pray as the year begins, you and me will not sit in our DGs, our discipleship groups, those listening on podcasts, right? Just because we have opened God's Word, talk about God's Word, doesn't mean you love God's Word. Do not make that presumption. Just because we opened it, we studied it, we talked about it for an hour, doesn't mean we love God's Word. And the ultimate test is when you turn and you say, I'm not going to live another day without feeding on His Word. To convict me of sin, to assure me of salvation, 
to set me free from Satan, to set me to discern temptations, to expose Satan, and to lead me to Christ. That is obedience to God. Last but not least, if God, through thousands of years, in His Word, has been giving to us His view of His search for the serpent crusher, of course, He was promising His Son as the ultimate Saviour of the universe, of the world, and of you and me. So the goodness of Jesus, the serpent crusher, is to ask yourself, do you believe that you need Jesus as the serpent crusher, as God's only redemption? Or are you going to sit in the privacy of your room and still indulge with the three Ds, doubting God's word, distorting God's word, still embracing the missing puzzle and still half believing or 1% believing that God is the great party pooper and in some way your low-grade discontentment is not dangerous. Your low-grade discontentment is not dangerous. Your low-grade discontentment when you already have 99 things in place in your HDB flat or your condominium or your house, right? your, your low-grade discontentment is not dangerous it is fatal. Because it's a matter of time before Satan bounces on that one and say, go for it. And like a gambler, you put all your pieces and say, I go for it. And you lose wife, husband, children, everything in your past. I'm willing to, to hell with God, to hell with my loved ones. To hell you will go. To hell you will go. Jesus said, it's better to enter heaven, maimed, blind, than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So is it your eye that is misleading you? Or your hand that is misleading you? Or your feet taking you to the wrong places? Be aware that low-grade discontentment is not dangerous. It is fatal. It was fatal to Eve fatal to the whole human race. And so, the goodness of Jesus as your saviour, as the serpent crusher. So I do not know what else you're going to read in the next week or how many more months before, by the grace of God, we medically and every way conquer and overcome. Can we call, stop calling it the Wuhan virus, even though it's more convenient? Can we call it the coronavirus? so that the people of Wuhan and Hupei and China are not looked upon as scapegoats for this. For this virus could have sprouted out anywhere, don't you think? Don't you think? Can we not call it what it is? You can remember NCOV or the coronavirus. And so I do not know what you're going to ha have, but I can, can I highly suggest that whatever you're receiving in terms of more fears and more rumour-mongerings and unsubstantiated stories. As much for every negative story that you get that might feed your fear and increase your prejudice unthinkingly, can you read God's Word and read some good stuff? Like what I just got from Salt and Light. and written about the pastors in Wuhan and the believers in Wuhan. The believers in the video can be heard saying, of course, in Mandarin, as they go out to the streets 
and offer pamphlets and offer and offer tracts. We are Christians. God bless you. We are Christians. God bless you. While the voiceover over of that video explains how true peace and protection and shelter can only be found in Christ. The Wuhan Root and Fruit Christian Church, which is located in Wuhan City, Reverend Huang recorded a message telling them that above everywhere else, we as Christians, right, with great emphasis he added, when thousands are afraid and panicking, the children of God must stand in the gap and intercede. Everything in, in this world will pass away, and even in the midst of calamity, God has given us the authority and power to pray and intercede for the city. So I said in my article, and you should read it, and you go and Google it if you don't believe your pastors, that over the last 2,000 years, when plagues struck, and the Spanish plague, my doctor friend says, killed 15 million people, this is a nothing. When the black plague struck Europe, it was Christians who fiercely went out Firstly, to minister and then to bury. Because they believe in the serpent crusher. And the serpent crusher invites us to a kingdom where there will be no more tear, no more sin, no more death. This is not a time for us to show that we have more fear than everyone else out there. The people of China do not need our prejudice. They do not need our discrimination. They need our prayers. They need our compassion. And we can rise up to that, don't you think? Brothers and sisters in Christ? Amen? Let's stand and say amen. Thank you, praise you, glorify you. That in the goodness of your heart, in all your wisdom, unmatched, unparalleled, you created the whole universe and world and invited us to rule it on your behalf and invited us to rest with you. And that is the real world where God and man dwell together. Us listening to your word, fulfilling your will. Us bringing glory to you. Us tending the garden as your priest. Please forgive us that we chose not to listen to you, O generous, benevolent, and a God of blessing, but chose to listen to the evil one. Speak to us, doubt of you by doubting your word, distorting of you by distorting your word, and finally the disobedience to you. Then each of us now very sadly carry in our hearts Adam's DNA, where the essence of our sin is that discontentment thinking, concluding that you are the great denier of our life, that the life that we have is a second-choice life, that we should go and look for that one missing puzzle that will make our life beautiful and charm. What a great liar, Satan is, and what a great lie when we go out and live that way. For when we step out of your presence, we step into hiding and denying and blaming, and we live that cursed life every day. We thank you that you never gave up on your purposes, we thank you for your grace that clothed Adam and Eve. We thank you for your grace that you gave Eve another child. We thank you for your grace that finally from your seed comes the Lord Jesus Christ, 
the one who will crush the liar forever and ever. And to him we belong and live by truth and live by faith and live by obedience. We have started to experience the beauty of this life. And now in this global crisis, may you by your spirit and your word so empower us to be different unto you. So we pray for your church and the Christians in Wuhan, in Hubei, in China. We pray for those who have lost loved ones. We pray for those who are infected and fighting for their lives. We pray for your mercy. We pray for a healing power. We pray for the medical personnel, the doctors and the nurses and all who are in the medical fraternity who have sworn the Hippocratic oath to go forth and risk life and limb for the good of neighbour, that you were so empowered. And we know there are many hundreds of them in China who put up their hands to go to these places, who put up their hands because they believe in you. And so we pray that we who are brothers and sisters in Christ will not falter into fear, falter into discrimination and to prejudice, but be so strengthened by you, so inspired by the Christians of yesteryear to go forth and shine for Jesus because we belong to him and a kingdom where there'll be no more fear, no more sin, and no more sickness, and no more death. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.